Hey everybody, I'm very pleased to announce my new article that is the fifth chapter in the series that we're, we've been uh, going over and building. And this series of chapters are contained in my Substack, which is a newsletter slash blog. But eventually I'm going to bundle these and the remaining chapters that are still to come. I'm going to bundle all these together into a book. So this is like my long-awaited book on philosophy I've been trying to write forever. And through this medium of Substack, I kind of found a platform that is a good way for me to write this so I can write it um, periodically or pu publish it serially and I can uh, do episodes on each chapter as I go and um, so this has been a good way for me to get this project done so I'm uh, very excited about the content I've done so far and I've been hard at work since my last episode building the material and doing the research for this article and for the next series of articles and uh, I, originally I had announced, I think at the end of my last episode, that I was gonna, the next article I was going to do was going to be on Plato's vision for a worldwide democracy. Um, that article is still coming up. Actually, in the course of compiling that, I ended up uh, coming up with the idea for a few other articles to do beforehand. So uh, in today's article, we're going to be looking at Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, we're going to be considering Buddhism more generally and the relationship between Buddhism and the uh, the Brahman caste of India that preceded it, and then we're going to also examine the relationship between these Brahmins and the earlier Aryan revelations that we've been discussing in this series, and that was the topic of the previous episode that we that we did. So in today's episode, we'll be progressing things uh, and moving things forward, and we're going to be revisiting uh, for a time the Axial Age, which is a period that we talked about. Uh, at length over the course of these past few episodes. So we're going to be revisiting the Axial Age and looking at the birth of Buddhism as one of the um, several schools of philosophy that emerged during the Axial, beginning of the Axial Age period during the 6th century BC. And this Axial Age period really goes for about a thousand years and it culminates in the 4th century AD, which is uh, the period of time when Manley Hall points to the, age, the world age that we're in shifted from Aries to Pisces and a new the, the sort of playing field of society and the playing field of, of human psychology gets uh, advanced and uh, a new a new age begins with new tasks to uh, uh, for mankind to attain. So during this period, uh, this actual age period that directly preceded this transition, and then uh, one of the things I discuss in this article is the idea that throughout the Axial Age, uh, going right up until the culminating point, not only was philosophy born at the beginning of the Axial Age, but during this course of the age, it was matured and evolved. And then a, a second birth happened, a new evolution of philosophy happened right at the end of the Axial Age in the, during this period of transition into the Age of Pisces. And this second wave produced a number of innovations in philosophy and I'll be discussing those but we, we, one example was that with the philosophy of Plato we find uh, in the fourth century AD at this end of the Axial Age this latter stage of it we find the philosophy of Plato evolved into Neoplatonism and that happens in uh, Alexandria that the Neoplatonic school emerges and they emerge alongside a number of other uh, schools that would become very prominent and these schools contained similar new themes that the Neoplatonic school emphasized. 
So there was a whole new wave of thinking that was emerging at the end of the Axial Age, in the beginning of the Piscean Age. And, um, and so Mahayana Buddhism is one of these new evolutions that takes place within the body of philosophy or the institution of philosophy. And so that's what we're going to be considering here. So the uh, title of the article is Mahayana Buddhism, A Guiding Light for the New Age. And then the subtitle is The Aryan Wisdom Tradition Descends from the Brahmins to the Buddhists. I'm going to read my introduction here. I start off by saying, This article is part of our ongoing series exploring the history, purpose, and destiny of philosophy. In the previous article of this series, we discussed how the birth of philosophy was originally inspired by a much older project, the Arya. The Arya is a grand project, ancient in origin, that is aimed at the long-term evolution of human civilization, or it's aimed at progressing this evolution. Uh, bringing it away from the evils that had plagued Atlantis and toward the realization of a higher spiritual plan and purpose. In this article, we're going to investigate Buddhism, or more specifically, the Mahayana or Northern School of Buddhism, which emerged 800 years or so after the original Buddhist school, or Sangha, was founded by Gautama Buddha during the 6th century BC. So this, this word Sangha is one that we're going to be referencing a lot. And the Sangha is like a school or an uh, the official translation is assembly. So the assembly of Buddhism was founded by Gautama Buddha during the 6th century BC. And um, the northern, the, the, yeah, the progressive version of it, the northern school or Mahayana school emerged 800 years after. Um, so I continue. The original philosophic school founded by the sage and prophet Gautama Siddhartha was an early prototype for what Buddhism would later become by the end of the Axial Age. Beginning around the 4th century AD, a period that coincides not only with the official founding of Christianity via the Council of Nicaea, but also with the transition of world ages between Aries and Pisces, a new, more advanced school of Buddhism emerged, the Mahayana school. So that's what we were just talking about. This Mahayana school emerges at this critical point in history. Um, so that's the introduction. Part one, the Mahayana school, an introduction. The Mahayana school, which is also called the Northern school, originates with the mysterious, with the mysterious sage Nagarjuna, who emerged in the fourth century AD to reveal for the first time publicly that Gautama Buddha had taught to a select cohort, cohort of disciples an esoteric and mystic doctrine. As a result of this revelation, it became apparent that there were actually three levels of degrees to the school or Sangha founded by Gautama Buddha. At the lowest level of the three was an outer or exoteric body. Um, and this became known as Hinayana Buddhism. So with Hinayana Buddhism, this exoteric branch would break off to become something like the Orthodox Christian Church, with the two higher levels not contained within its institutional structure. So remember, it has three levels, and so the lowest level is this Hinayana level, and that doesn't contain the two higher. But the two higher do, does contain an outer exoteric branch. So um, the Hinayana branch is the orthodox branch, where it's purely orthodox thinking. Um, but in Mahayana Buddhism, this exoteric body does exist, but it functions something like a church, where devotees worship the religious philosophy's hierarchy of bodhisattvas and Buddhas. And the difference is that Mahayana Buddhism, while it also has an exoteric doctrine, that exoteric doctrine is attached to an esoteric inner doctrine, that a, a more elite level of 
um, student of the doctrine follows or practices. They're initiated into that doctrine. Um, but the Hinayana system does not have this, and the, and, and the Orthodox Christian Church does, also does not have a connection to an authentic esoteric doctrine, at least formally. And so, um, so there's some comparisons to be made between Christianity and Buddhism. So, uh, so the two are similar in some ways, but unlike with Christianity or Hinayana Buddhism, the outer wing is explicitly connected to an inner esoteric body, an inner mystical Sangha, or assembly, whose more advanced doctrine was taught only to the most advanced students. Here, the symbols and myths that the system's exoteric body worshipped were still used, but they were approached from a philosophical rather than a religious standpoint. The figures of its mythology became principles to be meditated upon and comprehended. Uh, so rather than just worship, you tried to go deeper. So in other words, the inner branch of the Mahayana Sangha, or assembly, features a Kabbalistic school that completely reinterprets the system's outer religious symbolism. The teachers of the school are initiates, the masters are adepts, and the students are disciples. Here, we find the mysteries reborn. So that was the point I was trying to make in the last series, is that through philosophy, the mystery schools... Uh, become ported into this new vehicle, which is philosophy. Now, within philosophy, you, you find two stages. You find an initial stage where the esoteric vehicle has not yet been imparted into it. And then you find a second stage in which the esoteric vehicle is then put into it. And so that's Neoplatonism, and that is Mahayana Buddhism. In between these two poles is the schoolhouse. Where students, so in between the esoteric and exoteric branches uh, of the Mahayana doctrine, there's a middle path, a middle way, and that's the schoolhouse. Where students at a variety of levels are gradually working to improve and evolve themselves using the doctrine as their guide. The schoolhouse, as a public-facing institution, is also a new feature of Mahayana Buddhism. One that is only possible with the creation of a link between the school's exoteric and esoteric wings. So this is why there's not a philosophical branch to Christianity, at least not in the tradition of esoteric philosophy. It doesn't have an esoteric branch, and thus there's not that polarity within which this middle ground can emerge, which is the, the emergence of the church as a schoolhouse. Or the, so the Sangha, or, so the Sangha in, in the orthodox sense is the church or the temple with their monks. But the, uh, in Mahayana school, in the Mahayana Buddhism, the church or the assembly becomes the school. It's a more dynamic form of religion because you have, you have this, this philosophical core uh, put into it. And, and the religion, the outer religious aspect serves the inner core, it serves the philosophy. Um, as philosophers pass through the school's various grades, they are striving to move from the exoteric to the esoteric, using the doctrine as their guide. This middle place, the schoolhouse, is the proper domain of the philosophers. This is where the doctrine descends to meet the earnest student who is not yet perfected but working towards it. And this is an important point about philosophy, is that, you know, I consider my, myself a philosopher, but I don't consider myself an advanced, you know, person in, in a lot of ways or like an advanced spiritual soul. But you don't have to be that to be philosophy. I mean, that comes at the stage of initiate, 
or adept is when is when that level of perfection is demanded but it's like how do you get from here to there well that's what the point of philosophy is you know it didn't exist in atlantis there were no philosophers in atlantis because there wasn't this ladder this mechanism by which the exoteric and the esoteric could be linked so you had these godlike priests and then you had a mass of humanity who was comparatively primitive and ignorant well that was the atlantean archetype now in our age the archetype is different so our archetype is to have the mass of primitive humanity gradually be elevated and brought to the level of initiate and brought to the level of adept you know in, in the grand course of time so how does that happen well we need a branch by which the esoteric doctrine can extend into the outer segments of society and so the light can shine into the darkness and so that becomes philosophy it becomes the outer extension of the mysteries and the mysteries don't uh you know the, the the institution of the mystery schools in the pagan form you know dies out but what the mysteries represent this internal method of instruction this advanced esoteric doctrine that doesn't disappear you know that still needs its own sangha its own inner body and so uh you know the difference is is that in mahayana buddhism that inner, inner body is connected to an outer branch explicitly and you have the schoolhouse as this you know escalator and then uh, you know leading one to the other you know in the mystery schools you didn't have this and so you didn't have very many people advancing into the mysteries coming into the temple you know to become initiated uh and so part of philosophy's purpose is, is to quicken mankind quicken the body of mankind uh quicken the initiation process quicken the evolutionary process so that we can advance uh ahead of schedule the processes of nature um so this point is actually what i just make in the next part of the article i say the schoolhouse did not exist in Atlantis. It existed in a small way, available to a limited amount of individuals within an exclusive caste, uh, and this was all taken, taking place within, the mystery, within their mystery schools. But it really wasn't until the Axial Age when the great world teachers came uh, and, and unleashed and revealed the doctrine that education begins to be emphasized as a public institution. Um, before the birth of philosophy, education was held within the family. It was a personal and private matter, a choice. So there was no public education back then. I mean, this is also the time of the caste system. So you basically, you know, you were born, unless you were in the aristocracy, you know, most people were born you know, into a trade or, you know, or were slaves. Um, so meanwhile, within the mysteries, however, during the ancient period, uh, we find that education was standardized and carried out to an exact science. But the mysteries only accepted the best candidates, the top students. In a time when education was the luxury of the elite, nearly all the candidates for the mysteries came from the aristocratic class, or the caste, excuse me. Uh, with the emergence of philosophy, however, this situation begins to change. Now, education in the form of philosophic instruction begins to be offered publicly. A seed was being planted now in the populace. And then I continue. Uh, when philosophy first emerged, the age, of Ar the age of Aries had not yet ended. The old institutional paradigm was still in place, where the esoteric teachings were monopolized by the priesthood, their unauthorized dissemination being punishable by death. 
As such, the first iteration of philosophy, the first wave of schools founded by the great world teachers of the age, did not contain the esoteric doctrine, or even acknowledge its existence, in an explicitly public-facing form. It was not until the end of the Axial Age, a period, a period which also coincides with the end of the Age of Aries, that the old institutional paradigm would be completely destroyed and the esoteric doctrine could be completely liberated to be ported into the philosophical vehicle that had been prepared for it. In Mahayana Buddhism, the Northern School is a system of Buddhism that emerges as a result of this motion of the esoteric doctrine into the institutional vehicle of philosophy. So Mahayana Buddhism is the product of this motion. Uh, within Buddhism and other schools of philosophy have their own version. You know, there's a there's a more advanced version of Taoism that that emerges, for example. Um, you know, during this period, you also have the emergence of ca of Kabbalism. Uh, the Kabbalah, you know, it existed before, but it, it wasn't publicly acknowledged beyond the initiates of that um, of that culture. So, this happens. Uh, it's a pattern that happens all over the world in all different cultures. It's a coordinated event. So with Mahayana Buddhism, the mysteries reemerge, now cast free. Whereas before, the mysteries were held secretly within the temples, where they were available to a small elite caste, in their new form, its doctrine would now be taught at the highest level of the philosophical school, where it would be formally connected to lower degrees. Now, everyone in the lower grades is being prepared to one day join the esoteric fraternity at its highest levels. This is a more meritocratic turn of events. Before, the esoteric doctrine was realistically only available to one or two elite castes whose members possessed the means to join. What is true of Mahayana Buddhism is also true of the other great philosophical schools of the Axial Age. Each evolved a vehicle containing the esoteric doctrine at its core. One particularly notable example of this in the West is with the Alexandrian school of Neoplatonists that emerged around the same time that Mahayana Buddhism emerged in India. Both doctrines are founded upon the same basic revelation that the school's founder had secretly taught an inner esoteric doctrine to select disciples, which featured mysticism as a primary element. Because Plato was an initiate of the Greek mysteries, he was forbidden from revealing certain elements of its knowledge, instead having to resort to cryptic symbolism in his writing to indicate certain points he was not allowed to explicitly state. It was not until the old institutional order broke down that those forbidden elements could be formally incorporated into the doctrine. Unlike with Neoplatonism or other esoteric systems of religious philosophy that emerged and developed during the Piscean Age, Mahayana Buddhism's inner esoteric core is explicitly connected to the body of an outer exoteric religious vehicle. This is not the case in the West. The Orthodox Christian Church persecuted its esoteric counterpart, to such a degree that they were forced that these counterparts were forced to go underground into various secret societies and fraternal organizations. Um, Neoplatonism is one example. The unique value of Mahayana Buddhism is that its inner esoteric doctrine is connected seamlessly with its outer religious philosophy. This means that with Mahayana Buddhism, not only can anyone enter the schoolhouse, but even those who don't or or aren't yet capable can still be connected to it exoterically and still benefit from the simple wisdom teachings and ethical guidelines that it offers as a popular religion. And by saying that not only can anyone enter the schoolhouse, I'm not saying that anybody can enter at any degree that they want to. Everybody has to start at the neophyte level or the base level, uh, but everyone can enter. That wasn't 
the case necessarily with the the mysteries. And that ends the uh, the first section. And then the next section that uh, follows, section two, is called Mahayana Buddhism, a child of the Arya. All right, now beginning part two, Mahayana Buddhism, a child of the Arya. Uh, and the Arya is this migration of wi the wisdom teachings out of this source in the Himalayas. Um, in the previous article of this series, we explored how, at a remote point in the Atlantean age, a sect of priests broke away from Atlantis's main civilization base and relocated to the remote confines of the Himalayan mountains. Here, this band of exiled Atlantean priests and a small community of followers were oversold by what in Hinduism is called a Manu, and which in Buddhism is called either a Bodhisattva, which is a light being, if you translate the term, a being of light, uh, or an individual of, of Bodhi, which is a, a sort of a soul, the state of the soul power, which is a light body or a body of love. Um, or a Manushi Buddha, which is also called a human Buddha. So the word Manushi means uh, human. And you'll note that Manushi has the root word Manu. So the Manu and the Rishis of Hinduism are called the Manushi Buddha and the Bodhisattvas in, uh, in Buddhism, but it's equivalent what they're, what they're referring to. And the, the, uh, and the Manu is the human Buddha. So this oversouling spiritual entity is a highly evolved godlike human reborn from a previous cycle of existence who has taken the Bodhisattva's vow to return to embodiment in order to shine a light upon a humanity in need. This great bodhisattva manifests itself through seven subsidiary bodhisattvas who together embody the seven rays or seven soul powers of this human Buddha. These seven bodhisattvas emanate seven rays of wisdom, which unite together to form the embryo for what is called the adept self. So there's an adept, which is a, a category of the invisible hierarchy that we're going to be exploring and we have explored this this term adept is an important term so the adept the adept is the the head of the mystery schools it's the head of the esoteric philosophy schools it's the head of the terrestrial branch of, of what i'm calling the invisible government or what mailing call calls the invisible government um but within each of us is a seed of an adept so the adept is a fully evolved human and in each of us, this, this perfected form exists as a seed potential. So the seed potential is called the adept self. Um, so this adept self, this adept self is the archetype of the perfected human that exists within each of us. It is the inner bodhisattva that the Buddhist doctrine is designed to liberate. The adept is the individual who has achieved this liberation they have actualized the seed potential of the adept self and become adepts. The adept is therefore an outstanding individual that has risen from the present life wave to transmute themselves into a living embodiment of the spiritual ideal set by the original incarnating bodhisattvas who first established the Aryan cycle. The adept extends seven extensions of himself in the form of seven initiates. These seven initiates are the seven disciples of the adept. They exist at a level right below the master. 
Each embodies as their primary personality attribute one of the seven rays of the adept's soul power. So the adept has seven rays, the seven colors of the spectrum, and oversees seven initiates who uh, embody those seven rays. And remember, the adept himself was the product of seven rays, seven bodhisattvas. And, uh, and so you see seven move into one, which again moves into seven, which again moves into one. And the overall pattern is governed by a trinity or a threeness. And so the method of philosophy is to use this pattern of threeness to triangulate. And through triangulation, you disambiguate all the different elements of the sevenfold pattern or the septenary. That's the method you're going to use. Um, so we have the bodhisattvas. We have the mana or the uh, Manushi Buddha or the human Buddha. So those are the first two. And then we have the um, the adept, and then we have the initiates. So these are the four primary elements of the sangha. These are the four uh, founding elements. Altogether, then we have four primary elements to Earth's spiritual government: the Manushi Buddha, the seven Bodhisattvas, the adept, and the seven initiates. Together, these elements form the spiritual foundation of the assembly or sangha with the doctrine, uh, the doctrine of wisdom teachings being the element that glues them all together. The first adepts and initiates were drawn from the elite priests of the original Atlantean spiritual community, which had migrated to the Himalayas. These became the first Aryans, with that word describing an initiate of this sect. The word Aryan is therefore not about genetics and ethnicity, but about religion, spirituality, and caste positioning. This sacerdotal caste of Aryan yogi philosophers founded a revamped system of mystery schools as their first act, an institution of spiritual education termed the Institutes of Manu. Through this institution, new generations of initiates and adepts would be trained. The first cohort of adept initiates to be produced out of it were the Aryan Brahmins of ancient India. These Aryan Brahmins and their later descendants became the wandering adepts who carried the torch for the Arya, spreading its gospel around the world, seeding its institutional framework into cultural zones around the world so that all of mankind would receive its light and begin to grow in the direction of the archetype originally established by the Manu. The Aryan Mysteries, or Institutes of Manu as it was then called, was overseen by seven adepts, each of whom worked through seven initiates. These initiates in turn taught lesser disciples, and so on down the ladder goes. As the ladder of descent unfolds from the original cohort of Aryan Brahmins, the doctrine expands into other regions, races, cultures, uh, races, regions, races, and cultures outside of the original North Asian community it had been born within, and formed new sanghas and assemblies in these regions, each an offshoot or branch of the original Aryan seed. The very first descendants of the original Aryan adepts were the Indian Brahmins, who emerged and spread within India in a gradual motion of descent southward into the mainland Indian subcontinent. It was from this lineage of Brahmins 
thousands of years down the line that Gautama Siddhartha, the sage of Buddhism, first emerged. So he was from that caste of Brahmins. He was born into that caste as a prince. Um, he belonged to the elite Brahmanic caste, originally descended from these great yogi priests. As such, he was an initiate of their wisdom teachings and was chosen as an instrument of their order to found an earthly institution that their wisdom teachings could be ported into with the transition of the world into the age of Pisces looming. This institution became philosophy, which was built from three primary elements. A, the mythology of Siddhartha the adept, the hero god who sets the ideal example for man to follow by perfectly embodying the doctrine. B, the doctrine that Siddhartha leaves, which, is, which represents the way or ray to enlightenment. So remember, there's seven rays uh, embodied in seven teachers or seven initiates. And, um, and so Siddhartha's school or Gautama Buddha's school is one that represents his ray toward enlightenment. The, the, the ray that he took towards enlightenment or the path that he took. And then someone like Pythagoras represents um, a, a different path to enlightenment. Not completely different, but they're different you know, angles to the same area that different people will follow. Uh, and so each of the soul powers is its, is its own path towards enlightenment. And so each teacher embodies a different path. Uh, the Sangha or assembly, which is the community of initiates and disciples that forms around the doctrine, embodying its teachings and thus the example of the founder in their way of life. Through time, this new institution, philosophy, was born with a great destiny in store for it. It is intended to play a major role in the enfoldment of our age. The story of philosophy's origin, purpose, and destiny is the story that we've been tracking over the course of the first four essays that have already come so far in this series. We will also continue this coverage over the course of the next eight articles, where we gradually, where we will be gradually bringing things up to date before um, taking a look then into the future to see what's to come. Um, so in this present essay, we're going to be examining the significance of Mahayana Buddhism's first emergence, and, um, and we're going to look at the new features that it brought to Buddhism while also considering what it reveals about the older system of Brahmanism it was born out of, meaning we're, it's going to reveal something of the Brahmanic system, which in turn reveals something of the Aryan system. So all these things are going to come into play in this article. Um, so this discussion is where we begin in the next section. So now let's begin part three, the historical relationship between Buddhism and Brahmanism. As the Aryan wisdom teachings were brought around the world by its adepts and seeded into regions and culture zones who were descendants of the former Atlantean Empire, they gradually modified the old institutional paradigm of those cultures and shaped them into a new model that imitated the original Aryan seed archetype. Among the regions that the Aryan doctrine descended into around the world, the one that preserved it, its teachings in its most purest form, the one most untouched by the influence of outside thinking, is in the region of northern India right below the Himavat, where the original Aryan revelations took place. This is perhaps unsurprising. It is the geographical region that is closest to the source of the original revelation. 
Furthermore, its peoples and culture were the first converts of the Aryan adepts, and therefore its Brahmins were the oldest living Aryan descendants. At the same time, this region also had the benefit of being furthest away from the home base of the Atlantean home continent, and was well protected from the reach of their empire by the harsh terrain and climate of the region. This means that the institutional paradigm practiced by the native Indians of the region would be relatively less influenced by the dominance of Atlantean hegemony when compared to cultures in other regions of the world. It's important to emphasize that the term Arya refers not primarily to a genetic motion, but rather to a psychological one. This is a point I made before. In its most specific form of usage, the word Aryan references not the person of a specific genetic ethnicity, but rather an individual who has evolved their psychic and physical resources to, to become a member of an elite cast of spiritual teachers. An Aryan is an adept, and their band of initiates and disciples. These describe individuals who have been initiated into a closely guarded sect or caste, who are guardians and protectors of the wisdom tradition first revealed in the Himavat long ago. The first seven rishis or Aryan adepts were not born during the present earth cycle. They are bodhisattvas from a previous cycle who represent already perfected humans who have come back to show us the way forward. These seven bodhisattvas are sent from the spiritual consciousness of this divine human, the Manu, who in Mahayana Buddhism is termed the Manushi Buddha or human Buddha in order to plant the seed for a new evolutionary age of mankind to begin, much like how the rectangular megalith in 2001 A Space Odyssey heralds the uh, progression of the evolution of civilization. This seed first blossomed forth in the form of the first Indian Brahmins, as they rose, the original Aryans receded, and it was these first Indian Brahmins and their descendants that migrated out to expand the doctrine and seed it into the rest of the world. It was one of these Aryan Brahmins who played the part of Orpheus, the great reformer of Greek religion. It was the same cast of spiritual teachers who also brought the Osirian doctrine to Egypt and the Zoroastrian doctrine to Persia. Again and again, the pattern repeats itself around the world, with descendants of these later branches in turn becoming the seed parents for the next generation whose destiny is to further extend the doctrine and its light into the collective body of mankind. In the case of Mahayana Buddhism, this is what we find. The Brahmins were the first wave. The original Buddhist sect formed by the descendants of Gautama Buddha was an intermediate stage. And then later, the Mahayana school of Buddhism emerges as the fully matured final form. It's great vehicle, ready to carry forward the great doctrine of Aryan wisdom teachings into a new era and into a larger portion of the social collective. And then again, with Mahayana Buddhism, the same pattern reproduces itself with the early masters or adepts of Mahayana Buddhism becoming the seed fathers for future generations that will further extend the light of the doctrine into the world. In the East, we see the influence of this Mahayana branch of Buddhism in the form of the many Mahayana Buddhist sects that flourished in other Asian countries. 
China is the place that Manley Hall points to as being the region that most successfully internalized the Mahayana doctrine. Early on, its version became the standard that systems in other regions like Japan and Korea imitated. Here in China, where the Mahayana doctrine mixed with the beautiful poetic thinking of Lao Tzu and Taoism, the institutional framework of the Mahayana doctrine is revealed and preserved in its highest form. We also find the influence of the Mahayana sect in the West. For example, the same innovative transformations that took place in Buddhism with Nagarjuna and the Mahayana sect also take place in a very similar way in the West with the birth of the Alexandrian esoteric schools of the late Axial Age period. Four notable examples of doctrines born in the region around this intellectual capital of the ancient world include Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, Kabbalism, and Hermeticism. When we compare Buddhism with the other philosophical schools that rose around it, we find a similar pattern taking place through all of them. Over the course of the Axial Age, each is born in a similar way, and each develops and evolves in a certain direction, with the final state of with its final state of evolution coming with a subsequent rebirth of the system in a new form that explicitly references the existence of an esoteric doctrine. Buddhism, like its counterparts, was not born into the world fully realized. It required an incubation period of almost 1,000 years until the inner esoteric aspect of its doctrine would be revealed. With the revelation by Nagarjuna of this esoteric doctrine, a revelation that forms the foundation for Mahayana Buddhism, the Sangha or assembly was reborn into a new form where its reach would be extended further into the outer castes of society bringing the light of salvation, which is wisdom, to more and more of an ignorant populace greatly in need. With this extension, the doctrine of salvation was, made, was to be made available to more of a struggling mankind desperately in need of it. At the same time, it accomplished another feat. In addition to adding an outer or esoteric branch, uh, this new doctrine also featured an inner esoteric branch, that was meant for the highest students. This secret esoteric doctrine was concerned with initiatic rituals of the ancient mysteries and the tantric doctrines that were practiced by its highest initiates and adepts. To access these teachings, one had to be initiated into uh, the higher order of the school. This inner esoteric doctrine contained a body of sacred mystic teachings that had previously, before Mahayana Buddhism, been kept exclusively by the Brahmanic castes of Asia. At the point that Siddhartha first gives birth to Buddhism, first gave birth to Buddhism, the Brahmanic caste still existed and their authority was still preserved within the institutional framework of Indian society. By the end of the Axial Age, this social situation was no longer the case. It was then, around the 4th century AD, that Buddhism evolves into the form that would become its most fully realized version, Mahayana Buddhism, the Northern School. So with the, with the collapse of the institutional framework of, that protected the Brahmanic uh, version of the Institutes of Manu, when that uh, order collapsed, then the Institutes of Manu become reborn within Mahayana Buddhism. But they couldn't be reborn within, they couldn't have been put into the body of Buddhism while the Brahma, previous Brahmanic caste was still existing. 
they still held a monopoly on the teachings. And it wasn't until that group or that order was ended that these wisdom teachings could then be departed uh, or think it could then move into its new form. While the Brahmins preserved the original Aryan wisdom teachings intact within their own internal caste, they kept its knowledge confined away from the rest of society outside their exclusive order. With the Mahayana Buddhists, these same core Brahmanic wisdom teachings would finally be ported into a new vehicle, where it could then be gradually externalized to the population at large. The Buddhist monks of the, old, of the older body were given a choice, stay attached to their old interpretation or accept this new revelation. The ones attached to the original interpretation became the Hinayana Buddhists, the Southern School. The ones committed to the new revolution, revelation, meanwhile, became the Northern or Mahayana School. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the highest school of Buddhism, the Mahayana School, is called the Northern School, after the fact that it hails from North Asia, the region that is closest to the source of the original Aryan revelations. So the Northern School is, you know, closest to the Himalayas, which is where the original situation or the original revelation came. So of all the places in the world, the place that's the closest to the original place is India. Now it didn't stay there. It emerged out of there and then it went into China, or at least that's what Manny Hall indicates. On one quick side note, the situation between the Mahayana and Hinayana schools rather closely mirrors that which took place between the Orthodox Christian Church and the Gnostics with their revelation of a mystic method of interpreting Christianity. The difference is the Mahayana Buddhists were able to preserve Buddhism's, Buddhism's esoteric doctrine, just like how the Jewish Kabbalists were able to preserve their esoteric doctrine that exists behind the Torah. The esoteric core of Christianity was persecuted and extinguished. It was forced underground. In the West, it would pop up as Neoplatonism, Hermeticism, Kabbalism, Astrology, Alchemy, Rosicrucianism, and Freemasonry, just to name a few forms. Uh, but these are all forms that are disconnected from the outer body of a popular religion, except maybe, you know, for a while, you could say maybe Freemasonry, but I mean, there's a big difference between Mahayana Buddhism, the, the reach of the outer body of the of that school all over Asia there's a big difference between that and, and these other things I was just mentioning in the West. All these are small sects, small schools, small secret societies or orders or fraternal societies, you know, but it's different than being connected to a whole religious system like Mahayana Buddhism is. So Mahayana Buddhism is special, you know, with Mahayana Buddhism, the inner esoteric doctrine remains connected to the outer exoteric uh, religious body. And this is special, and in the West, we don't have this. Now, before moving on, let's recap once more the line of descent of the Aryan wisdom teachings. The original Aryans were a cast of divine beings or bodhisattvas who passed their wisdom down to a small circle of Brahmins who were initiated into the Aryan wisdom teachings. These Brahmins were sourced from surrounding tribes in the region, ones who were comparatively primitive in relation to the Aryan adepts they encountered. The Brahmin caste spread over India gradually, preserving the original Aryan doctrine and condensing it into a highly refined system of yoga and tantra that was developed and evolved through a continuous lineage of scholars and sages. 
These sacred doctrines, highly distilled, then pass into the hands of Gautama Buddha, who repackaged them in Buddhist terminology and shared them with a small circle of arhats, or his initiates, who kept this esoteric doctrine alive within a secret inner body. This esoteric doctrine was kept secret and not revealed within the body of Buddhism until the end of the Axial Age, when Nagarjuna rose to reveal its existence, along with a new evolved doctrine of Buddhism that could incorporate it, and this was the Mahayana school. So that's how Mahayana, that's the backstory of Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, part four, the Sangha, or the assembly. Buddhism begins with the teacher, Gautama Buddha. The teacher reveals the doctrine, which he also embodies through his life's work. Gautama Buddha embodies the archetype. He is the fully awakened human of the current race, born from the seed archetype originally planted within mankind by the Aryan Manu. He exists as the ideal living representation for what the disciple can become by following the doctrine and learning to embody it in the same manner that the master learned to do. Gautama Buddha wasn't born enlightened. He attained to that rarefied state by overcoming the trials and tribulations of life, attaining internal peace and self-realization out of the stimulation that his experiences in life gave him. He accomplished what we are all trying to accomplish. Therefore, the fact of the tremendous life he lived gives his followers a firm basis in which to plant their faith. If they follow the doctrine and live its codes, they can gradually develop to become like the master. The Sangha, or assembly, is the organization of students that follow the master's example and preach his doctrine and assemble together to collectively embody the Buddhist way of life. Through the Sangha, Buddhism becomes institutionalized. It is given an organizational vehicle that can, serve, that can serve as a home for the doctrine, preserving it while spreading its light and pursuing its objectives. Archetypally, the primordial Sangha is seven in number, seven witnesses to the revelation of the teacher, seven rays who witness the pure light. In Hindu mythology, the teacher archetype is represented by the Manu, who comes to humanity from a higher plane of existence in order to show mankind the way of yoga or union. Not being able to remove himself from the plane of the solar heart, the divine man sends seven messengers, the seven bodhisattvas, who, existing in a state one stage below the total perfection of the Manu, are able to step their spiritualized consciousness down one plane lower to reach the highest terrestrial humans, who have elevated themselves to the point of being able to be contacted by these bodhisattvas within their internal structure of mental consciousness. So, seven human adepts are contacted by the seven bodhisattvas, with each of the seven human adepts serving as the embodying vehicle for the wisdom of one of these seven bodhisattvas. Through this mechanism of knowledge transference, which is where the bodhisattvas uh, give knowledge to the adepts who give it to the initiates who then give it to their lesser disciples, this pathway. Uh, through this uh, path, the sacred scriptures and teachings of the world have been revealed to the outer body of mankind from the inner planes of the spiritual world where they originate. So, you know, knowledge 
especially when we're talking about wisdom knowledge, is not a bottom-up creation. It's a top-down revelation. It's revealed from within uh, because it originates from within. It originates from you know the seed archetype within ourselves or the seed archetype established by the the rishis and the manu. That's where the wisdom teachings originate. Um, and these beings incarnate before our cycle even began, before there even were humans of the present life wave to study these teachings, the individuals who had already mastered the teachings and were living embodiments of the archetype that the rest of humanity looks to one day become, they incarnated before you know the race even existed. And they had to incarnate first because that's how the seed archetype seed archetype was established and uh and then the 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 line the line of descent after the establishing of the seed archetype it takes place through an initiation so one adept and seven rishi uh then you know together initiate a next cohort of rishi who come together to produce an adept and then that cycle reproduces itself uh, when the, the next generation of um, you know rishi come together and produce an adept who in turn you know in turn train seven more you know who produce another adept so um, that's how it goes from one comes seven and then the seven form a lesser one who then rises to grow like the original one that produced the seven and uh, and once he grows to become like that original one then he repeats the process and produces seven and those seven you know focus their rays and to produce a lesser one and then that one rises to become like the father so it, that's how it works there's a macrocosm microcosm uh, but the microcosm rises to become like the macrocosm uh so you know, the microcosm starts off as a seed and then the seed grows to become like the tree and then the tree drops another seed and that seed becomes like the tree. So that's how it works. As fully evolved spiritual beings, the adept perfectly embodies the doctrine he teaches to his initiates. They in turn work to do the same, to elevate themselves to become perfect embodiments of the doctrine. Each focuses in particular on one aspect of the doctrine uh, i.e. on one of its seven rays or soul powers. Having elevated themselves to the point of becoming living terrestrial embodiments of the archetype, the adept raised up by the bodhisattvas then becomes the living example of the doctrine for a new generation of initiates. Together, the seven adepts, each with seven initiates, embody the seven paths to yoga or union. This is the foundation of the Sangha, the assembly. So this is what the, you know, the sage Gautama Buddha founded. And this is what the other esoteric, I mean, the other philosophical um, great teachers of the Axo Age, what they founded. Each uh, founded an exoteric and an esoteric branch. Each subsequent generation of adepts and initiates after the first emerges by being raised up by a previous generation, like how the Brahmins were raised up from the Aryans. The Sangha perpetuates as a continuous unbroken lineage. Uh, 
It is passed down from one generation to another as a deliberate act. A new generation must be prepared to take on the responsibilities associated with fulfilling the Sangha's mission. Here we come across the Bodhisattva ideal. Entities on one level are striving to evolve up toward the next level, while entities who are already at that next level agree to return to the previous level to help the next group in their quest to make the leap. When the next group finally makes this achievement with the, with the help of the bodhisattvas who came back, they reciprocate the gesture that was originally made toward them, and then they repeat the bodhisattva vow to return and help those who are still to come. By this point, the original bodhisattvas who had come back to help that first cohort who has since graduated are now finally ready to move on to the next stage of life's great ladder of unfoldment. By this point, the original bodhisattvas who had come back to help that first cohort who have since graduated are now finally ready to move on to the next stage of life's great ladder of unfoldment. The vow of the bodhisattva has been fulfilled. Now they will gain, now they will again repeat this process on a higher level, becoming now the students of a yet greater doctrine of teachings and the disciples of a yet greater level of Bodhisattva and Buddha. So that's the ladder of ascent. You go from one level, when you complete one level, then you come back and you teach. And then finally, once you've done that, then you're released from the vow and you go on to the higher stage. So instead of going directly onto the higher stage, you come back. So that you do the intermediate round of becoming the teacher and serving uh, in the same way that when you were going through the process of elevating or evolving, somebody else had come back to teach you. So now you have to go back and do the same. So that's the way of the Bodhisattva. And that's the vow of the Bodhisattva. Part five, the middle way. Among the numerous esoteric doctrines that emerge at the onset of the Piscean age, Mahayana Buddhism holds a special place. With the Mahayana school, Buddhism extends the doctrine in Sangha in two directions at once, transforming Buddhism in the process. In one direction, it extends the fundamentals of the doctrine outwards into society and makes it more available to the average individual. Here, the laity can be can benefit from the simple ethical, moral, and spiritual codes of life that Buddhism provides. At the same time, it also extends the doctrine inwards, making available to the Sangha's most advanced students a body of esoteric initiatic teachings that were previously not made available to them uh, because they were hoarded by the, the Brahmanic caste at that earlier point. Um, so with the Mahayana school, this esoteric doctrine emerges. In between these two extremes, the exoteric and the esoteric is the middle way, which is the way of philosophy. Through philosophy, one turns from an outward-facing, exoterically-oriented state of consciousness and begins their journey up the path that inevitably ends with mysticism, esotericism, and spiritual awakening. Philosophy's emergence is therefore the pivot point of the doctrine's unfoldment. It is here that the individual agrees to enter the path that will inevitably lead them to the end of suffering and the attainment of nirvana. The vehicle for the salvation is the doctrine, with a student who learns to understand and internalize the doctrine becoming its quote-unquote lover.
In this way, the philosopher come, becomes a lover of Sophia or a lover of wisdom. Because the doctrine is the embodiment of wisdom. So the, the person who loves the, comes to love the doctrine becomes a lover of Sophia. And that's what the word philosophy literally means. Um, so to take this path, to move from outward facing to inward moving is the right hand path. And this is the path that the doctrine is intended to meet you on and lead you down. So when you take the first step on this path, you would officially declare yourself a neophyte or a novice or a beginner. But it's that first step that's important because that first step is that pivot when you're going from one to the other. So you take that first step, you officially become the neophyte. And it is here that the teachings of the doctrine begin. So philosophy is this creation that is designed to extend into society and meet the novice or the neophyte where they are at that first stage of that first turning point. Um, and so that's the value, that's what didn't exist with the mystery schools was this extension. So philosophy provides this institutional mechanism by which the wisdom teachings, the light can extend further into society. Um, and then, you know, the format takes his philosophy and philosophy is, is the doctrine that leads you inward. And so philosophy is crowned with initiation. And, and at that point, it goes on into higher esoteric uh, spheres. Um, in sum, with Mahayana Buddhism, the esoteric and exoteric aspects of the doctrine become linked within the body of one Sangha. Here, the most advanced students can benefit from the esoteric branch of the doctrine, while less mature and capable souls can still gain the benefit of a lower level of teachings that emphasize the simple religious, moral, ethical, and ritualistic aspects of the doctrine. In between these two poles, the esoteric and exoteric, emerges the schoolhouse, where the body of man is gradually elevated from the outer plane of the exoteric to the inner plane of the esoteric. So the schoolhouse is this intermediate factor, and that is another thing that exists within philosophy that didn't exist in the previous age. Because it is able to integrate the inner, the outer, and the middle together in one package, the Mahayana system is ideally designed as a vehicle to spread the light of the Dharma to all sentient beings. So, you know, kind of what's being implied here is that the framework of the uh, of Mahayana Buddhism's religious philosophy is one that we have to study and investigate if we're really going to understand the esoteric doctrine because this is um, you know every, every teaching has their own is, it needs to be studied because each one has its own ray that it embodies but so to speak the ray the, the you know the, the the soul power that it embodies but uh, Buddhism in particular preserves the ray of wisdom that was uh, embodied within the original Aryan revelation. So, um, so really that revelation was a light that had seven colors, but it was primarily keyed to one color and, and Mahayana Buddhism is key to that color, that same color. So that's the implication here. Um, all right. Into part five, now part six. 
The impact of the Mahayana revelations on the practicing Buddhists of the period was tremendous. Was tremendous. As Manly, as Manly Hall summarizes, quote, with the rise of the Mahayana school, the religious life of devout Buddhists was greatly changed. The goal was no longer departure from this world, and the saint was no longer an ascetic. He chose rather the path of compassion, seeking liberation for others rather than himself. He sought to embody within his own conduct the heart of God, living for the redemption of all creatures. He was no longer concerned with his own perfection. He lived from day to day, occupied with labors of redemption. Through self-forgetfulness, he forgot the illusion of self and lived in a continuous awareness of the divine love flowing in from every dimension of space and flowing out through the gateways of his personal dedications. So that was a quote from Manly Hall. The doctrine taught in Mahayana Buddhism is, quote, the way of the Bodhisattva. The adepts and initiates of the esoteric school embody the way of the Bodhisattva. This is the doctrine that they teach to their students. Through their earthly careers, these incarnating, incarnating sages revealed the Dharma to the outer body of mankind. The Dharma is another name for the doctrine. This they accomplished through their doctrine and through the Sangha they established. Together, these three elements synthesized to form the backbone of Buddhism as a philosophical institution. So the three elements, the, um, the teacher as the example, the doctrine, and the sangha. Um, you know, symbolically, that's the dot, the line, and the circle. Uh, to use the, a metaphor from Manley Hall's book, Lectures on Ancient Philosophy. So the dot is the teacher, the line is the doctrine, and the circle is the sangha. By following the Mahayana school of philosophy, one becomes educated in the ways of the bodhisattva. They are being prepared to one day restate the same vow of, renunci of renunciation that the great spiritual teachers of humanity have all taken. The Bodhisattva doctrine is implicitly based on the concept of reincarnation. Bodhisattvas come back to guide us. Over the course of many lives and many experiences, gradually learn the, we learn the wisdom of their ways and dedicate ourselves to evolving ourselves toward the attainment of their high standard. The Bodhisattva doctrine is implicitly based on the concept of reincarnation. Bodhisattvas come back to guide us. Over the course of many lives and many experiences, gradually learn, we learn the wisdom of their ways, the way of the Bodhisattva that is, and become dedicated to evolving ourselves toward the attainment of their high standard. Without the notion of reincarnation, none of this is possible. There has to be a superior state of reality for the bodhisattva to come back from. In truth, the whole concept of reincarnation is premised upon the notion that there is something outside the cycle of creation that is looking down upon it and projecting sequences of personalities into it, into creation, I mean, uh, which this over-self or over-souling entity can control and become stimulated by. So there's an over-soul that is projecting embodiments, embodied personalities, or individual psyches. The oversoul is projecting uh, psychological entities down into physical embodiment uh, over a sequence of cycles. And these embodiments that it has projected down are getting stimulation. Uh, and, and they're stimulating this higher self. 
and they're stimulating the evolution of that higher self. And, uh, and then as that higher self evolves, it, it takes better control of the lower vehicles or its outer extensions. And so there's a, pro there's a building process here where as the higher self grows, it gains more control over the vehicle, which then accelerates its growth. And then the whole thing just keeps going. So that's how, that's how it's supposed, you know, that's how it's designed. Um, this higher self outside of creation is the true entity of evolution. Evolution takes place not within the mortal personality, but instead within the immortal overself, who is the alpha and omega of all mortal personalities. This overself is the higher self, which in Buddhism is referred to as the bodhisattva self, implying that your incarnating uh, overself is actually the seed of a future bodhisattva. It exists above the material plane of the earth and is projecting down into it objective personalities. These personalities become instruments through which this incarnating overself can express itself through and evolve itself within. This bodhisattva self is an embryonic bodhisattva. As this embryo is matured over the course of many lifetimes, it evolves to become, uh, in sequences, the initiate, then the adept, and then finally, it does become the bodhisattva. It becomes the realization of itself. So this is the path of the, of the bodhisattva, the path that every great spiritual teacher of mankind has taken. The great spiritual teachers of world history were once struggling mortals just like us. They have been through the trials and tribulations of life, experienced and known ignorance, and also know what it takes to meet and overcome the many obstacles that earth presents to its inhabitants. Based on wisdom obtained through experience, these beings have come back to teach us the way forward. Quote, they bore witness to the ascent of the human potential. They were elder brothers capable of leading the way to eternal freedom because they had walked that way themselves. That's a Manly Hall quote. The true leaders of the invisible government of the world are bodhisattvas who have been through it, who know, and who are compassionate enough to come back and show us the way to the great beyond. These spiritual leaders aren't kings, they're teachers. They aren't micromanagers, they are guides and facilitators. They don't interject forcibly. They wait patiently for their assistance to be graciously requested. As Manly P. Hall describes this situation, Quote, the administration of the racial unfoldment was put in the keeping of certain custodians termed adepts who must keep the universal laws and our servants and our servants rather than masters of the divine plan. These adepts are required by the law of the Manu to guide the race without interfering with the right of the human being to learn through experience. As the wise parent protects his child but, but does not overshadow his individuality, so the hierarchy can only operate in accordance with the conscious will of the governed. When man sees light, the hierarchy reveals itself, but until such time, it cannot force growth. End quote. So that's the end of part six. And then the last part, part seven, Manly P. Hall on the reincarnating over self. And this section, I kind of 
extract a bunch of quotes of Manly Halls from one of his articles because he really nails the point I want to talk uh, or get home here about the idea that the higher self is a bodhisattva or the seed of a future bodhisattva and that we are, it is incarnating through these terrestrial lives that we're living in order to gain the stimulation and gain the experience necessary to develop the wisdom to release and realize that potential to become a bodhisattva. So we don't become the bodhisattva, the adept self or the higher self becomes the bodhisattva. And, uh, and when it does so, or as it does so, it becomes liberated from the need to manifest personalities. And so finally, when you become the initiate and the adept, you uh, begin to exit the wheel of um, karma that binds you into terrestrial uh, existence. And, um, and when you're liberated from that, you know, you're free to go on to higher planes of evolution, except you must take the Bodhisattva vow and come back before you go further. Um, so that's the, the principle here that we're working with. All right. Section seven, last section, Manly P. Hall on the reincarnating overself. In Manly P. Hall's writings, he discusses the relationship between the Bodhisattva self and the process of reincarnation in detail. In the space below, I want to share an extended excerpt from one of his articles on the topic, uh, which is called research on the law of rebirth because it contains a number of points that are relevant to our discussion of the idea that the higher self is actually a bodhisattva self. In this, article, in this article I'm about to quote, Mr. Hall describes in detail the inner psychological dynamics involved with reincarnation. In particular, he examines the relationship between the physical personality and what he calls the superego, which is this greater bodhisattva self. Hall begins this quote by noting that the overself is bound to the physical personality through a series of subconscious psychological attachments or false acceptances termed skandhas. So this is S-K-A-N-D-A-S, skandhas. He states that this overself can only release itself from involvement in material existence by releasing itself from these skandhas or attachments. In relation, to the, in relation to the incarnating overself, these skandhas form, quote, one thread of karma or, com or, or compensative destiny extended through many lives, binding them together like beads upon a single thread. Thus, the complete cycle of human embodiments, made up of several hundred physical incarnations, is itself a complete pattern in which the hindrances are slowly but inevitably transcended and transmuted. Um, and I've heard Manley Hall say, or I've seen him say, it's around 777 total incarnations for the, um, the Bodhisattva soul to completely liberate itself from these attachments. He continues, during, the, during this longer lifespan, a conditioned entity exists. For this entity, each rebirth is like a day in school, and education cannot be completed in one day or even in one grade. This means that man possesses a super personality which endures throughout the human life cycle. It began when man began millions of years ago, and it will continue until the evolutionary program for humanity is completed.
This superego is in a superior relationship to the lesser personalities, which it projects from its own substance. It also possesses in an, an available form the total experience of a long sequence of lives. Such experiences, attainments, and abilities as these separate embodiments attain are ultimately incorporated into the essential nature of the superego. So all the experiences in all the different lifetimes are the distilled and the essence of the experience over all those lives is uh, incorporated into the nature of the super of the superego, which is the over-self or the higher self or the bodhisattva self. Within this larger perspective, it is more adequate or so with this larger perspective, this superego, I mean, meaning the larger perspective of many lifetimes, uh, the superego is more adequately oriented than those separate personalities which are unaware of their own continuity. Hall points to this over-self as a type of personal God. Symbolically speaking, quote now, uh, quoting him now, uh, symbolically speaking, this superego is a venerable agent for it has, is what he calls it, a venerable agent, ancient, for it has endured long and remembers the whole story of mankind. Considered from the human perspective, this superego is almost a god, for it possesses at all times a decisional power over the personalities to which it bears a parental relationship. It would therefore be natural to assume that this superego is also a guardian, a ruler over its own emanations, with sufficient knowledge of the intentions and purposes with which it engenders the material, sh the material shadows of itself. In terms of mythology, therefore, the superego is the immortal mortal and gives rise to the myth of the culture hero or hero god. It is so, which is the, the main character of every you know great myth is the hero god. You know that's the Jesus Christ of Christianity is the hero god. So the superego is the archetype actually of these myths. It's the thing within that we're trying to represent in our outer mythology with these figures. So the superego is the immortal mortal. It is immortal when compared to its countless fragmentary embodiments, but it is mortal in the sense that like each of its extensions, it is born, passes through childhood, attains maturity and age, and is finally dissolved in the Mahaparinirvana, which is the great uh, cessation of the cycle of activity of the one. So we're talking about the one, the three, the seven. Well, when the one ceases its cycle of activity, then the seven unwinds to the three and the three unwinds back to the one. And that's called the Mahaparinirvana. Um, so... In many ways, it truly is a superior being, meaning the overself. In fact, many ancient peoples believe that prayers are actually addressed to this higher part of our own natures rather than to mysterious rather than to mysterious gods abiding in remote part of space. Uh, this is an interesting point. So when we pray, who is it that we're that we're really praying to? You know who the, the personal God is something that is actually personally within us that we have a personal connection to. So when you pray, you're, you know, the first thing that's going to hear that is that thing that is within you. So that's what he's saying there. Hall notes that this over self is growing and evolving. 
this evolution is taking place through the lower personalities it extends. Although the self, the higher self, might abide in the blessed heavens of Buddhist metaphysics, I'm quoting again, it was still subject to the grand illusion, that is, the total concept of the reality of individualized existence. If the reincarnated ego is a personality, then the superego is an individuality, so it's the parent of personality. But the end is not with individuality, it's actually with universality. Like the human personality, the superego is subject to the world illusion just at a different scale. It's relative. Um, so that's why it's the immortal mortal. It's immortal relative to mortals, but relative to the one, it's mortal. Because it's, it's subject to absorption into that higher state. Um, so if it were not subject to the world, part of the world illusion, the, the, we're talking about the superego, super if it wasn't subject to illusion, it would not have to gain its own liberation through fulfilling this, quote, cycle of necessity. It has not exhausted its instinct to objectivity, and it is this instinct which causes it to seek release through the forms which it fashions. So this instinct towards objectivity is embodied in these things called the skandhas that we were talking about, S-K-A-N-D-A-S, the skandhas. Uh, those are the chakras, essentially. Those are the seed archetypes in your psyche, which... Uh, they exist because they are in some way still drawn towards um, objectivity. There's so, some striving or yearning within them. So this has to be exhausted or transmuted uh, in order for the higher self to come through. Um, so continuing with this quote, it would therefore be consistent to recognize the superego as in a process of growth. It, too, is moving inevitably from ignorance to wisdom, and its evolution is accomplished by means of the personalities which it fashions. By implication, then, we have another self invisible to us, which is also passing through infancy, childhood, and adolescence. It may take a hundred human lives to bring the human superego from infancy to childhood, and several hundred lives to carry it safely through the mysteries of psychic adolescence. When the meditating mystic experiences enlightenment, this is not taking place primarily within the physical personality, but instead within the over-self. Quote, through study and the enfoldment of interior powers of knowledge, man becomes aware of this radiant psychic entity from which his personality is suspended and to which it must sometime return. Through his unfolding understanding, man builds bridges of awareness by which his human personality becomes ever more perfectly adjusted to the essential requirements of the superego. The conscious dedication of the physical personality to the needs of the superior self results ultimately in such a union by which the body, which is the mortal personality, is reunited with its direct source, the superego. This is in substance the story of the arhats and adepts who have achieved identity with the quote immortal mortal and are therefore regarded as participating directly and fully in its attributes. The Buddhists believe that when the personal ego attains a condition of rapport with this superego, it receives a larger vision and certain valuable instructions. Through this attunement, man intuitively senses his own endurance and his survival as a rational creature 
seeking gradually to overcome the limitations imposed by rationality itself. So the, the rapport of the lower ego with the superego is experienced as nirvana. So that connection, that awakening that happens of the higher within the lower is experienced as nirvana. That's what it is. Um, moving on. Each of us exists here on earth as a reflection of the, of the state of maturity our over self has thus far achieved in its evolution. Uh, now quoting again, quote, this, uh, the superego passes through various phases of maturity and immaturity. As in the case of the human being, maturity is measured by the degree of realization that the superego has attained. Each life brings with it some motion toward the annihilation of the sense of diversity. During embodiment, the personality must extend itself into some new sphere of experience in order that the superego can continue its own growth. So that's what the purpose of the person that the embodiment is of the personality is to extend itself to stimulate a further round of evolution for this superego. Um, quote, the pressures upon its individual personalities or the superego's individual personalities will therefore be according to its own degree of enlightenment. Thus, the individual may experience the tyranny of the superego and be impelled by internal pressure to excessive conduct. The driving force which seems to press some mortals to an exceptional destiny may originate in the intensities of the superego. Through our lifespans here on earth, we work out the karma of this incarnating over-self. In Buddhist philosophy, the exhaustion of karma means specifically the dying out of the capacity for illusion. As long as man is capable of perpetuating error within himself, he is bound to the wheel of transmigratory existence. The capacity for illusion is determined by the degree of development attained by the superego, which, through its long period of migrations, gains the enlightenment necessary to extract itself totally from the restrictions imposed by self-consciousness. It must therefore follow that nirvana, or ultimate release, can occur only to the superior self. By union with the superego, the objective personality moves upward in realization to a state of individuality. This means that it gains a total awareness of its true source and complete nature. The Buddhist assumes that such a degree of understanding prepares and equips the disciple for further advancement toward the ultimate objective. Um, so you know, there's multiple stages of initiation here. And the, you know, one of the key stages is this attainment of the level of individuality in which you have this attunement between the lower and the higher. Now, this state of attunement and the the experience of nirvana that it, uh, that accompanies it is not the final end. Um, so that's part of this bodhisattva vow is that you've experienced a taste of this nirvana, but you don't absorb into it. You experience it and then you come back enriched by it, but with more still to to attain, more still to serve and to accomplish, and then higher states to evolve into. Because remember, the ultimate isn't nirvana. The ultimate, uh, you know, goes up into parinirvana, and then above parinirvana, there's the maha parinirvana. So it doesn't end at nirvana; it actually begins at nirvana.
Uh, continuing on, the individual who attains union with the superego becomes united with their bodhisattva self. And quoting Manley Hall again, in Buddhist teachings, the bodhisattvas or enlightened selves are regarded as human beings who have attained conscious union with the over-self. Once formed, these bodhisattvas act as interceptors between man and total reality, which means the larger spiritual universe of, of unities. They abide in the suburbs of the superior world and are dedicated totally to the service of the law of truth. Their individualities represent the superego coming of age. This maturity is possible only through the cycle of personalities which they project into the illusions of matter. This implies that man, in his ignorance, is contributing to the perfection of a superior being whose very existence may be unknown to its mortal projection. It is this higher self within us that must make the great vow of the Bodhisattva. It is the Arhat or Adept self that must come finally to the place of the great decision. The patriarchs of Buddhism are said to have attained this degree of universal insight. They might therefore decide whether to remain on the level of the superego and fashion bodies for the service of their fellow men or to retire into the universal essence from which all life comes. Once the Bodhisattva comes back, they become the Superman, the world hero. Uh, as Melanie Hall describes it, in the case of the Arhat, a physical embodiment makes available the total content of the superego because the wall of immaturity has been transcended. We cannot say that the superior self is actually embodied, but the channels of consciousness are open and the memory of past lives and all the experiences which have been gathered through the ages are then recorded in the conscious memory of the incarnating being. This is why such incarnations are said to be accompanied by wonders and the newborn child is aware at birth of his mission and destiny. So, in conclusion, we can rest easy knowing that the real leaders of our world aren't at Davos or in some underground facility owned by Lockheed Martin. Rather, they are bodhisattvas who are our elder brothers who have come back to show us the way and they've left their legacy to us in the form of their doctrine which is philosophy. This is the real invisible government of the world. If we can collectively acknowledge this truth and learn to live by the doctrine they have left us, we can have a new golden age. And that's the uh, end of the article. So thanks for sticking with it and sticking with the episode. Um, I, uh, as I was going over this, I made a bunch of edits to the version I originally put out on the, uh, I sent out to the email. So, uh, apologies for the typos and stuff on the original email that I sent out from the Substack uh, posting. Um, so I recommend when I, when I send stuff out, when you're ready to actually sit down and read the article, click on the link and read it on the website because I might have done some updates since the original posting. So I'll just say that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing a, a Manly Hall lecture next that follows up on, on this theme of Mahayana Buddhism and goes into an aspect of it that I haven't talked about and actually don't end up talking about in, in the next article too much either really, but, uh, it's an important concept. So we're gonna be talking about it in the next episode in the form of a Manly Hall lecture. 
And then I have a follow-up article to this that's coming again as part of this longer series. And this next article is going to return to Mahayana Buddhism. And it's going to go into their teaching the, in depth, their, their teaching of the, uh, the spiritual hierarchy and how it works. So starting with the Adi Buddha, the first Buddha, and then talking about this idea of the seven rays and then the um, celestial bodhisattvas and then the terrestrial you know, bodhisattvas and the celestial Manu and the terrestrial Manu, all this stuff. All this stuff is, is uh, what we're going to be going into in this next article. And this is important because this is going to be establishing like how the spiritual cosmology of the universe works and how essentially the highest levels of uh, Buddha consciousness, Buddha consciousness interface with us here on earth. And this is uh, a critical aspect of the esoteric doctrine. So um, I spent a long time studying, you know, this first under theosophy and then under uh, a bunch of Manly Hall's teachings and uh and it was really only in the course of compiling this this series that i'm doing right now that i feel like i really put together the main ideas so you know putting together this stuff is what helps me make that synthesis you know uh so like you know the process of from of, of really learning and mastering has to come with the teaching because it's the act of teaching that makes you f make that final synthesis so anyway um I'm really excited about this next article that's coming out, and uh, but also about this one that we just did. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, check out the article. Again, this is all going to be put into a book in the future, um, and I hope you see how all these tr articles are weaving together now uh, and everything is building on each other. So we're going to be uh, continuing on, and uh, again, thanks for keeping up with the channel. Thanks for the support, and God bless. Good night.